1: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture, and today I'm here with Bill Nowlin, the author of Vinyl Ventures, My 50 Years at Rauner Records. Bill, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. So can you talk a little bit about why you decided to write this book?
2: <laughs> well, I started it in 2008, actually, uh, and then kind of put it on the shelf for a while. I was aware that rounder having begun in the year 1970 was approaching our 50th anniversary. And I just wanted to memorialize things while we still had access to all our records, all our file cabinets and uh, information and details and so forth. I just wanted to start telling a story and, and putting it together. And, uh, there are a couple times that, uh, it looked as though another company might put out a, uh, another press might put out a book on rounder. So I shelved it a couple times, but, uh, as we were approaching the 50th anniversary and the a third possibility fell through, I decided, well, time to see if maybe I should put this out right at the time of the 50th anniversary.
1: I'm hoping you can start out by talking a little bit about how Rounder founded, um, how you founded
2: Rounder, um, how it got started. We were three college students uh, at the time. Uh, actually, I think we'd all graduated college when the company started, but uh, We followed a lot of folk music in the middle 1960s there and often went out a couple nights a week to see different bands come through town. We liked to buy records of uh, groups that we liked, but there were groups that didn't have records out or hadn't had a record out for many years. And we started writing to some companies, asking them about putting out a record of this band of ours and another group that we liked. And a couple of them wrote back and said, well, if you send us a tape, we'll consider it. So we thought, okay. Uh, But in the end, uh, when we first came up with a tape and uh, that we acquired a tape that had already been made and wasn't being used for a hundred dollars, and then we made our first album for a total cost of seven dollars, and we just decided to do it ourselves. I mean, I'd I'd run a humor magazine in college, done a couple of issues of that, and uh, had a little bit of experience doing what we call publishing, maybe, uh, but we really didn't know anything about business. Uh, I often tell the story about dropping our our first records uh, at a local store and they said, well, be sure to send us an invoice. And I had no idea what that word meant. Uh, This was a different era maybe. uh, And uh, in the sixties, we were all kind of hippies and uh, not interested in business at all. Uh, Just didn't know the basics. But apparently over the years, we developed rather quickly the instinct I mean, it's kind of logical sense. If you buy something and then sell it for more than you paid for it, you have a little, built up a little bit of money that you can put towards the next project. We didn't draw any salaries for four years. We didn't pay any taxes for four years. We didn't uh, do anything other than put everything we had into to making these records because it was fun. And we got a lot of positive feedback from a lot of other people that said, what are you going to do next? You know, here's an idea. How about recording this band? And let me, uh, one guy, uh, Doug Parker, offered to design our first album cover for free if we let him design all the rest of them for free. And he was just trying to build a resume. Uh, and we, we did, you know, I don't know, maybe did seven or eight albums. And eventually we decided, you know, to pay him or use other people and things. So it, it just kind of grew. It was a, I call it a hobby that got out of control because none of us ever intended to go into business. We all expected to be teachers or otherwise involved uh, in our different pursuits. And, and this is just something that happened over time.
1: Right, and you talk about like, sort of falling into some of this um, throughout the book, like that you were gonna be a collective, and, and even, um, I love the story of how you finally hired a lawyer a, a hmm. lawyer to help you. And it was like, you didn't, you you know, he was asking for things that you, had, but you
2: didn't know yeah. the names of it, right? Um, yeah. The, uh, the first accountant that we talked about asked to, to, to see our accounts receivable journal. And I said, what's that? Uh, and he said, it's a list of all the people that owe you money. And I said, oh, we've certainly got that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and also, could you, you I'm um, also spent a lot of time, um, traveling around trying to collect music, and, which is sort of has a history in folk and a history in blues of that, like trying to preserve and collect. So can you talk a little bit about that too, especially at the beginning, what you were trying to do and, and, and preserve?
2: Sure, we, we lived in the Boston area. Uh, Ken and myself were roommates at Tufts University in the Boston area and Marianne, our third partner, she was a graduate student at Northeastern University. Uh, she later went to Clark. I went to the University of Chicago, Ken went to uh, Cornell, but we, we basically were all based in the Boston area. And much of the music we liked was from the Southeast, it was uh, bluegrass and old time country music. Uh, a lot of the folk performers came from the Southern part of the country. So we just started traveling to, to try to go see some of these people perform. We went to a number of bluegrass festivals uh, down South, we visited the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. because they, we came to learn that they had a big folk music archive. And so we went in there to learn about what they had. And uh, as I said, we had a lot of people that gave us pointers, you know, you should go here and check out this band and go there. And the three of us lived for the first two or three summers. We lived out of a Volkswagen van that I owned. It was a, uh, you know, Ken and Marion slept on the floor and I slept on the back seat. Uh, and, uh, we had some curtains that we rigged up so we could sort of pull the, sh- pull the shades closed. Uh, uh, but we, uh, you know, slept at nighttime and, uh, lived during the daytime and drove place to place, uh, just making our way around. It It's kind of fun.
1: Yeah. And a lot of your, at first you were a lot of, um, selling your records was basically right out of that van, going to shows. And so can you talk a little bit about that that folk music scene that you were sort of really involved in and part of?
2: We put out our first two records in October 1970. uh, And I mentioned dropping off some at a local store, but for the most part, stores asked us, who's your distributor? And we said, well, we don't have it. They said, well, you've got to buy from, we have to buy from a distributor. We can't just be buying from all these little companies that have one or two records. So we found a distributor locally and we started working with them. As we were traveling uh, to some of these festivals, we uh, set up a shop out in front. We just basically put out a couple of sawhorses with borrowed. We didn't carry our own sawhorses even, but we borrowed them at the local festival and just put up a little uh, couple of boards and boxes of records. And we carried the records of nine or 10 other small labels. So we had not just our two records or the third, second year we put out three more, uh, but we had a good selection of, you know, a couple hundred different titles that we carried. And people asked us, where can you get these? These are great records. I've never seen this one before. If we're not here, where can we get them? And so we started a mail order company. And uh, that's one of the ways we, we really began to get our records around. People would send in orders and we were on the road, but a friend named Mark Wilson, who was a Harvard Philosophy student back in Cambridge, uh, he would take collect the mail for us, and then tell us. Uh, you know, I'd be calling from North Carolina or something. He said, "Well, you got an order for these two albums from this person here," and he, I'd write down the address, and we'd go to the post office and mail them. The two records, essentially, out of the back of our VW, and it's, the the business just built from there. It was it's kind of well, it's kind of humorous looking back on it. It was it was fun at the time, and it's a kind of even more fun in a way to believe that we actually made this work. And it grew because there were people wanted this music. We filled kind of a void at the time. And uh, a number of other companies came along very shortly afterwards, but uh, we were in the right place at the right time. And uh, I guess, as I said, I guess we kind of had a good instinct for what, what would work. We never picked records because we thought we'd make a lot of money on them. We did them because we liked the music. But our tastes were reflected enough with a small community, I think, of other, other people that we were able to grow and grow at a reasonable pace. If we'd had some big hit early on, we would have been sunk because we didn't have any money. We had basically $1,000 was our startup capital, if you want to call it that. I never would have known what that meant at the time. But uh, and, and we never, that's what we built on. We just sold enough. We made a little more money, put out some more records. We were working other jobs. I did start teaching college. I taught at university, taught political science, and at the time that brought in nine thousand dollars a year, which was a pretty good pay back then, more than I needed. So we, you know, Marion worked as a secretary at a Greek theological seminary, and we we pulled whatever money we had. You mentioned collective, we we all did live in the same apartment, and we just shared everything, uh, all any money that we had, we just shared it and uh, put it all into this. This is what we did, today day and night, uh, outside whatever responsibilities we might have had through uh, through work.
1: Yeah, and you, I love, you know, you talk about the mail order and um, sending these out, and I love that um, throughout you have little stories about experiences with um, certain, there's um, the one about the woman who ordered her songs of Robert Burns, ah. and, and uh, ah. throughout, but we sort of get to see the feel of what it was like to sort of just, um be a part of this at the beginning. And and you also talk about, like you said, you didn't have a big hit right away, but that you had no sense of when you should be creating these records, when you should be um yeah. releasing records and all of that.
2: Right. We we hadn't realized that there was, I mean, we didn't think about Christmas selling season, for instance, or something that, that you shouldn't put out a record in December because you know stores don't really want to take in no new products and they want to sell the stuff that they've already stocked up on. We just put out stuff when it was ready. We also didn't know about marketing. And it, I would say it was maybe three or four years into the company where somebody asked us, you know, told us, listen, I'm trying to make my living playing music here. And you guys aren't really, you just put our records out, but you don't really try to sell them. And so we realized partly because, and I mentioned another couple of companies came along soon after we did, we started losing a couple of acts that would move to another company that was a little more promotional oriented. So Marion in particular got involved with uh, with promotion and started making contacts with record radio stations and uh, some publications and, uh, and so forth. And we, we uh, started trying to sell the records.
1: <laughs> yeah, it seemed like eventually the three of you realized that you had um different areas of expertise or different interests and that you were able, and, and that it worked really well, it melded well together.
2: Yeah, I, I mentioned Marion was kind of more involved with, with promotion and publicity. Uh, Ken enjoyed working in the studio more with the musicians themselves. So he became much more active in that way. And I, I think partly just by nature and also the fact that I did have this college professor job that kept me busy during the day, at least three days a week. Uh, I gravitated towards more what you might call back office things, like the books, these <laughs> accounts receivables journal that I didn't know what it meant. Uh, the uh, paying the bills, making sure we paid the artists royalties because we wanted to make sure we were absolutely spick and span in the uh, in terms of accounting to the artists, and that kind of relationships with our, eventually the distributors. We all had them, but that would became more my area of expertise, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, And so you sort of (laughs) made your way through the, um, you know, early 70s. And then you ended up going to a show and seeing a guy named George Thorogood in The Destroyer.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that was the first big hit. And we were very fortunate with the way that record built because we did make a gold record eventually, which is 500,000 sales. uh, Over a million dollars worth of uh, income, even at wholesale level. But it grew over a period of about... Ten to twelve months or so. If we'd been hit all at once, we would have. I guess we would have had to go to a bank and ask for a loan, and I'm not sure we would have gotten one. But it built slowly enough. You know, we'd sell a hundred copies here, and then they might come back and order two hundred copies, given the distributor. Uh, But we uh, we've been hearing about him. The guy that talked us into it was a bus driver for a local school kids school program called Head Start, sort of a preschool. uh, Bus driver, and he uh, he had some substance abuse issues that he had conquered, but he devoted his money into record collecting instead of alcohol. Uh, and that was a much more constructive use of his, uh, his pay, but uh, he became a regular every Friday he'd show up at our warehouse. And, uh, that we uh, actually the basement of our house was our warehouse for the first, uh, six years, I guess. Uh, the, um, and, and bought records. He kept telling us about this guy named George Thorogood, And we never went to see him. George moved back to Delaware, where he is from. And so we kind of missed out on the opportunity, I guess. But then John booked him at a show about a mile from our house and said, listen, I'm paying to have this guy come up from Delaware to play a show. And I want you guys to come see him. So, so OK, OK, OK. So I went over and within one song, I got on the phone to Ken and said, Ken, you got to come over here and, and see this guy. And he was just, uh, you know, we liked folk music, but one of my favorite bands was also the Rolling Stones. And George Thorogood and the Destroyers were very much like the Rolling Stones. They were kind of a blues-based rock band. Uh, played a lot of Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry and, uh, and same kind of Stones music that the early Stones had uh, played. And So we were kind of uncertain as to whether if we put out a band like this, whether our traditional folk music audience would abandon us and say, these guys are selling out. They're just going for rock and roll. But that didn't happen either. Uh, George, he knew a lot of the musicians we worked with. He knew Ola Bell Reed, a ballad singer from not far. He, she was from Maryland. He was from Delaware. She, He had known about her. He knew a Frank Huffington that we put out a record, a, a blues man from Delaware. Uh, he had the, he had a background and just a nice guy too, uh, which made a, a big difference. We, we did evaluate when we're working with somebody, whether we thought it was somebody that had realistic expect- expectations, somebody that we could get along with and enjoy working with. And uh he was all of those things, and uh uh some other people weren't, but uh, you know, you learn <laughs> along the way. But yeah, he became a, a major hit, and we had all kinds of people calling us from the major labels, wanting to buy his contract and so forth. He wasn't interested at the time, we weren't interested at the time, and so we put out a Essentially, three albums before we did realize. At the beginning of the MTV era, we realized we needed the music video, and we had no experience. And they were expensive to make, and we realized it was probably time that he moved to a major label. And so we we actually formed a partnership together, uh, a joint venture called the Rounder Destroyer Company, and we signed a deal with one of the major labels that kind of took him to another level. Yeah, I thought they're was- still, still out there too. Fifty. You know, almost fifty years later, he's still touring,
1: yeah, he's doing it. I um li- I lived in Philadelphia for a long time, Oh, okay. so yes. and um he apparently used to play Dobbs um and South Street and yep. you know up there. So, yes, he's well known. and i I really love the story of how um, how Dell Newark got
2: a baseball stadium. <laughs> Well, yeah, with the royalties, his first significant royalty check, they didn't want to just keep it for themselves. So the destroyers helped refurbish a local field. And and he's he's a big baseball fan at SMI. And he um they fixed up a ballpark mm-hmm. in Newark, Delaware.
1: Yeah. yeah. No, and I am a big baseball fan, too. So, I, you know, opening day would just, you know, just this week past weekend. So yep. that made me happy to read that and see that. And you, so you started to get big and you started to actually hire people. Can you talk a little bit about going from like three people living out of a van to a larger um, group of
2: and having employees? Yeah, it was something we weren't uh, I accustomed to would be even the wrong word. we have never done it before. Uh, and uh, it was, we put it off for a long time. And uh, one time Peter Stampfell from the group, the Holy Modal Rounders, was, was visiting. And he was looking at us. He said, you guys, you guys are working till midnight and then you're getting up at 630 in the morning. And before you have breakfast, you're putting in a couple hours packing boxes. know, you've got to take a break here. You'll, you'll wear yourself out. And we said, well, we can't hire people. That would be like exploitation. And he said, well, exploit me. And he said, I need a job. If I didn't live in New York, I'd be here begging you to, uh, to work for you. And he said, you'd be doing somebody a favor to hire them. There's people that need work. And so we talked us into it and we, we hired a couple different people. Uh, uh, Kathy Keat and Steve Harris that both worked at a local record store and uh, both uh, very, very good workers. And uh, we, we kind of built it from there over the years. Of course, we became a much bigger company and we set up our own distribution outfit. We ended up distributing over 400 different independent labels. We were doing a significant amount of business. We had over 100 employees uh, near the end there and uh, of, of the distribution setup in the into the late 1980s and, and all.
1: And talk a little bit about what that sort of the growing pains of that too, right? Not knowing you know, finally hiring people and then having large employees. Um they unionized and and, and all these things that um, going from the 70s into the 80s and 90s and beyond like how the record industry and business changed throughout that time. Yeah,
2: we we had started hiring these first two, a couple of people that I mentioned. They worked out of the basement of our house. One, they actually both lived in the house, too, for a, a period of time. Uh, and uh, the um, company grew, especially with George Thorogood uh, coming on uh, and us taking on more labels and, and uh, some of the other small labels like Alligator Records that came along just a year or two behind us. They were, you know, had built up. So they had maybe seven or eight records at the time and were starting to do well with Hound Dog Taylor and some of their recordings. Uh, so we were growing. We had to hire more people. And then with George Thurgood, we ended up having to deal with a lot of radio people. We had to go out on the road with him uh, to a lot of shows and uh, and so forth. And I think we, uh, it it sort of got to the point where the, close family relationship that we had with the very few employees sort of fractured because we were being torn off in different directions. There were more than a few employees. And, uh, eventually some of them did form, I think we had eight or nine people at the time formed a, a small union and we, we were taken aback. We were offended. We thought, what did we do that, you know, you would want to call the feds on us, so to speak. Uh, and, uh, it, uh, it was interesting, you know, it forced us to accept some of the realities of, you know, think about other people in ways that we hadn't naturally done because we were, um, you know, we was, this was a mission to us uh, and we were never in it with profit motive on our own. We were never in it for a weekly paycheck either. But some of the people that worked for us needed that weekly paycheck they weren't. They they liked what they we were doing. We had a lot of musicians that worked for us, but they didn't necessarily share our mission. Uh, they needed to get paid, and they they wanted to protect themselves too. They worried that something could go wrong, and we'd be off someplace, and you know we might arbitrarily fire somebody, even though we never had. But uh, it, it happened uh, eventually. Uh, we did get somebody stealing one time, and that was uh, we chastised her, but uh, we didn't actually fire her. Uh, over time I mean there was there was one guy that actually got hired that didn't know how to read or write it was kind of an interesting situation you don't think to ask people when you hire them do you know how to read or write it's not really the kind of question that comes up and it just was the case that uh, he didn't and he was hired to work in the warehouse and you know we had all our records filed alphanumerically and he you know within a couple of days he was kept asking people where is this record?" and people started, you know, saying, asking about him, and, you know, as I as, uh, became a situation, but it was, uh, I don't know, you, we, we went through uh, some unbelievable things in in one regard. I still have a photograph, actually, I, I won't show it to you. I still have a photograph of here that somebody uh, cashed, a, went to the bank and, and cashed a check that uh, they had forged off of our account, and so I have the photograph that came from the bank's monitor, you know, when they they caught him on on camera but you know
1: yeah and throughout the book you have uh there's this mixture of more um like photos that are professional photos but also some some photos and images um that are pretty like ones that are personally taken right ones that are from like you in the van or some of the recordings you did in the house or even um like Lists, album lists, and that kind of thing. So yeah. it's, you've got this great mix of um images for and for people to sort of look at and see.
2: Well, we were a very homegrown outfit, so we just, you know, things like that. List of albums that you mentioned. I I just took a, I ran it through my scanner now that I have a scanner, and uh, it's a. Uh, it just shows where we were at, at a certain point in time. These were the artists that we were thinking about recording. And if you look at that list in detail, we actually did end up recording many of the people on the list.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So in
1: 1990, you sort of move into the 90s. um, You turn 20, like you were saying, other labels are coming out. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the, you know, the the, the 1990s and, and sort of what, sort of turns you saw in, um, as a record label?
2: Things changed in a lot of ways. When we first began, there were LPs, uh, 12-inch vinyl LPs. Hence, to some extent, the name of the book, Vinyl Ventures. Uh, but along came cassettes, audio cassettes, as an item that you could buy and sell. I probably have one around here someplace. Uh, in 1985, compact discs came along. I know I have some of those here. Uh, the uh, But we were one of the first companies that got involved with compact disc. There was a company called Rico Disc that was near us in the Boston area and they jumped in with both feet. We licensed a couple of albums from us to put out on CD. And then we noticed what they were doing. We went and visited the local CD manufacturer that they used and we decided we'd start putting out our own. So we jumped in with both feet too. We put out the first bluegrass compact disc ever made, the first blues CD. Uh, first Cajun CD, different areas of folk music and all. And we, we really built up that area pretty big. think other things began to happen in the late 1980s. There was a, um, the first stretch of record stores began to go out of business as some of the big chain stores like Best Buy and Circuit City came in. And they put in pretty large record departments uh, and sell them. Sometimes they sold them at a loss. Uh, as a way to attract customers into the store, hoping they would buy stereo equipment or something of that sort. Uh, And uh, they drove a lot of the small independent labels out of business. Uh, It became a a difficult record stores, but ultimately some of the record labels also went out of business for similar reasons. They had shipped records out to all these stores that then went out of business and couldn't pay them. They sometimes over-manufactured inventory because some of these Stores like uh, Circuit City, uh, you know, would place a large order and then ended up returning many of them because they hadn't sold as well as they unknowingly thought they might. Um, so there was a shrinkage of the industry in a sense, and that caused a bit of shaking out in a in a number of ways. We went through a couple of stretches where we formed, we tried to set up a national distributorship. We partnered at one time with Ryko Disc and. A company in St. Louis and another company in Seattle, we put together a network uh, that we thought could handle all the distribution for all the small labels. But that was right at the same time this uh, this shrinkage of retail hit. So that caused that one to kind of fall apart. And We formed another partnership with a California-based uh, distributor at another time, and, and that one also sort of fell apart for other reasons. There was a reason where we weren't necessarily sharing the same goals uh, and uh, so that partnership didn't, uh, didn't last. But we, we kept working through them. And then uh, you know, and the next evolution came in the middle 90s or towards the later part of the 90s when digital sound became a bigger thing. And it started being that you could, companies such as Napster came along and you could begin to download music for free. And of course that was not necessarily a good thing for a record company that was trying to sell records to, uh, to people. So it, uh, it really began to threaten uh, the, uh, the existence of record companies in general. We've worked yeah. through that era, but it was not easy by any means.
1: I mean, during that time you had a couple of people who, well, let's talk about Rafi first, right? Like you had a couple of artists that you signed that became really important, right? And really instrumental. So you had Rafi that you worked with. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and that direction?
2: we, we had a children's series very early on. Some of the first records we put out were, were children's records. Uh, Mike and Peggy Seeger doing American folk songs for children. And I went to uh, Georgia with a friend uh, and we recorded an album of Bessie Jones uh, singing children's songs. She was, uh, she'd learned her songs from her grandparents who were slaves and, and was passing down that kind of tradition of, uh, of uh, song and dance to uh, current generations. Uh, but yeah, I mean, then at a certain point we had the opportunity to work with Rafi and to Marion and our president at the time, John Verant went and had a meeting with him. And we uh, he had been working with a major label in the United States, but wanted really to work more with an independent. And so we ended up doing a deal with him that still survives to this day, some 20 years later, uh, when he does put out, he put out a record, I think, a couple of years ago. Uh, it's uh, He was the top children artist in the North America at the time, from Canada. Uh, and so most of his records were with the Canadian label. But being the American uh, record company was a, a big deal. Allison Krauss was another huge artist that we came up with uh, early on. Ken heard a cassette of her uh, singing with another band. She was not even named on the... She was not part of the band name, but he heard her voice and said instantly heard that this was a very special voice. She was 13 years old when we first approached her. And uh, needless to say, when we signed the the contract, her parents had to sign on her behalf because she was a minor. By far from the only person we ever signed when they were young teenagers. Mark O'Connor was another one. Jerry Douglas was another. There were uh, quite a a number of people, even uh, currently, Sierra Hull. Uh, who we're working with right now in 2021. She was uh, a teenager when we first uh, recorded her. There were also plenty of people that were in their 70s and 80s when we first recorded them. But uh, this was just a uh, another area. But Alison, of course, became a very big star, our, our biggest selling artist ever uh, until just recently, until just last month's Grammy Awards. She had won more Grammys than any female artist in history. Beyonce just topped her. Uh, this most recent Grammy Awards, but uh, she, uh, Allison, is she's right up there. She surpassed Aretha Franklin at one point. in uh, Country, bluegrass, uh, all kinds of uh, Grammy Awards. She's been a uh, a wonderful person to work with over the years too. As as I said, we we wanted to work with people that we would enjoy working with, and of course they wouldn't want to work with us if we weren't okay to work with anyhow. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and Allison was one of the. She was my next question. Sort of, it's yeah. and, and and talking about that, and also, but you bring up the Grammys, and and so you, and it was before Allison, though she became really important. But you started to get some recognition beyond just your sort, right? Some industry recognition and starting to win Grammys, and um, and that. So can you talk about that too? That move from we were just doing this to. The records out of the back of our van, literally out of the back of our van, to getting that recognition and becoming part of the industry.
2: Well, as I, as I said at, early on, um, we got recognition, if you want to call it that, from music fans that said, "This is great, you know what what you're doing? How about signing Riders in the Sky? We want to hear a record by them. How about signing this act and that act?" Our first Grammy Award was with Gate Mouth Brown, who from uh, Louisiana, uh, Texas and Louisiana, but recorded in the in Louisiana. And that was, uh, I think, in the late 70s, uh, middle to late 70s when we recorded him. Uh, It was, I mean, we never thought about winning a Grammy Award. I don't know if we even knew what the Grammys were for our first few years. But it was nice to have this recognition from people that had come before us, uh, people that worked at the Library of Congress that saw what we were doing and, and fed us ideas, people that worked in the industry. Record Bar was a big, important chain in the in the Southeast uh, at the time. And the, the guy that ran Record Bar kind of sent us a fan letter at one point. He said he just really enjoyed what we we're doing and they, they liked to feature our records in their stores, which was, that felt great. Sing Out Magazine did a story on us early on and a couple of you know, publications uh, did a story on Rounder because we, we were kind of the first label along in what might be a sort of a second and larger wave of uh, folk music recording. So we did get recognition from a lot of different people and that's that's continued of course as we got to be older and more venerable and so forth we started getting lifetime achievement awards and things of that sort. Uh it's uh it all feels good of course.
1: And and as you like into the late 90s and into 2000s you brought in um you mentioned um John and you sort of have a fourth a fourth rounder right so can you talk about like that transition into,
2: you know, your 40 years. <laughs> yeah, John Veron was a very important uh, ingredient in Rounder sustaining the growth that we had had. We'd hit this period of time where I mentioned it was getting more difficult to sell records, uh, the, what I call retail shrinkage and all, and he had come to us, he was a Harvard Law School student, and he'd come to us as an intern if you can imagine somebody from Harvard Law School becoming an intern down the street, we're we're only about uh, less than a mile from Harvard Law School. And uh, he just started working as an intern uh, for us, unpaid, and uh, just helping out any way he could, learning the music business, uh, in a sense. Uh, And uh, he became very, very important to us. one of the things he did is... uh, you had mentioned the union early on, uh, being a lawyer and all, um, or a developing lawyer. He had a, a mindset that uh, helped in terms of approaching things of that nature. So he handled some of our contracts for us. He joined me in terms of the negotiations with the union when it was time to renew the contract that we had with them. He became very important from the business side of things. Uh, I learned how, what invoice meant and I learned some of these other things and so forth but um the uh, he had a, a he had a, dis, a more dispassionate sense too because he wasn't uh, we were the ones that gave birth to rounder so to speak he wasn't and so he, when somebody from the union said something that maybe offended us as the creator of the label he didn't have that same defensiveness and he was able to approach things in a more rational way i guess uh not that we flew off the top of our heads all the time but uh it was just uh it was great working with him and uh it came a point that he had an offer to go to work for a major label in new york city and he told us uh, he told me uh that we were going that he was going to take this offer but he just wanted to let us know and actually all three of us were in the room at the time in our conference room and i said john could you go outside for a few minutes. And as soon as he left, I said to Ken and Marion, we, we don't want to lose him, right? And they said, of course not. And uh, I said, let's make him the president of the company uh, and as a way of enticing him to stay. Because Marion was the president, but she was only the president because we thought it would be nice to have a woman as president. And she was the youngest of the three of us. At one point, we were, had applied for a National Endowment for the Humanities grant called Youth Grants and she was two years younger than us, so she was more youthful. And we got the grant. We ended up putting out 12 albums as a result of the $10,000 grant, which is a pretty good deal for the federal government. The, uh, but uh, John, you know, so we did. We, we made him the president, and uh, he uh, accepted and stayed with us another 20 years or so.
1: And so eventually you get to the point where, um, you know, the music industry is changing, everything's changing, and you decide to sell to Concord Music Group. So can you talk a bit about that and that choice and sort of um, that move in the 2010,
2: right? 2010. We were worried about this increase of digital music and the inability of us with our skill set of selling records Making them is one thing, but selling them is another thing, uh, and uh, it had become more important uh, over time as we built up a significant size uh, work. Uh, you know, people working for us work. Uh, I can't think of the word work staff or whatever. Uh, we were responsible for a lot of people, uh, and uh, and ourselves, and our artists. Uh, and uh, we didn't know if we had what it would take to to survive. We knew there would be a time that we could get past this. We were confident that there was a time that we could get past this and that some new model would present itself. But we weren't sure that we were the right people to carry the label forward. Or and, and we were in our 60s by this point too. We, we weren't sure we had the whatever it took to to see it through. And so we actually made a deal that was very, very uh, worked very, very nicely uh uh and where they let us well, we worked together for three years. We did a deal in 2010, but there was a three-year period that we had to sort of sort each other out and see. And then at 2013, we made the the final deal. And then shortly afterwards, they did move the label to Nashville, which disappointed us, but we understood. Besides, it wasn't our label at that point. (laughs) Anyhow, we we went off the payroll, John stayed on, uh, and uh, we produced albums on the side. And there was an agreement that they they would issue the albums that that we produced, and uh, we cut back and produced a more limited number of things. But still, got invited to go to different functions and and all that. And it's uh, very uh, very good. The people that that started it had the the right instinct. They'd come out of small label background too, uh, and they had the right instinct for what it was like to take care of our artists. And uh, it's just they've become a billion dollar company now. I mean, they've they've been a very big uh, in terms of acquiring music catalogs, music publishing, a lot of music publishing, theatrical stuff. They own all Rogers and Hammerstein music and so forth. I mean, it's, it's become a, a major uh, enterprise from from little old rounder putting out a couple of albums in a basement. Uh, and uh, now this, we're part of this billion dollar company.
1: It's one of those things you never thought you'd see. and And now you're here.
2: Sort of, we're anyway, not. We're not getting the billions of dollars. We, we went off the, we went off the <laughs> payroll eight years ago. But, but,
1: um, and you sort of end with the, talking, like, returning to this idea of your sense of, like, you have the sense of mission and talking about sort of travel and in your sort of ideology. So I mean, what is it? You know, is there anything you want to talk about about that sort of final, like, sort of what you? I don't know if what you learned from this. <laughs> Best way to say it, but that what this experience and has meant in your life and that connection.
2: Well, we've gotten somewhat different ways since we've become less active. Uh, Ken, I think, is probably the one that's uh, uh, I don't know, I feel worse for him because he was always in the studio working with musicians and he just hasn't been able to be as active at that. And then with the pandemic hitting, of course, there isn't even any live music to go see. So it's been a very, very rough stretch. I got very much into baseball, writing about baseball. And so I've put out actually dozens of books that I've written or edited about uh, about baseball and some others about music. I did a book, couple of books w- that came through Rounder, a book about Woody Guthrie and a book about the early days of bluegrass and a, put out a bluegrass music trivia book uh, The uh, f- for that matter. Just kind of uh, enjoyed my retirement by working harder than ever on <laughs> uh, just a different task. Marian has gotten more involved with some sort of political change uh, activities uh, and looking at some of the uh, the issues of today.
1: And so usually, I mean, we're talking, we've been talking for a while. And one of my final, you sort of got at it, but my, usually my mm-hmm. final question is um, if there's anything you're working on right now that you sort of want to talk about and so, I don't know if there are any new books or anything else that you want to sort of push or, or talk about.
2: Well, in, in the, uh, trying to think, the uh, music area, they're not really working on anything right now. As I said, I've kind of gone off the deep end in terms of working on baseball. I, the, uh, I did hit, Vinyl Ventures, I believe was book number 101 of the books that I've written or edited and uh, 102 is out now baseball's greatest comeback games 103 is coming out next week a book about jackie robinson many of these books i work on with multiple authors both of those books have 30 or 40 authors and i've kind of write an opening essay and one of the articles but then i gather the works of all these other people that write on special topics and edit them together as a book and it's really kept me very busy uh I've got an article that I wrote coming up in the International Country Music Journal in a couple of months on the history of a local band in the Boston area called Joe Val and the New England Bluegrass Boys. I'd written up a, a history for them. And so that, that's, uh, it's, that'll be nice to see that come out in June as uh, I expect. It's just, I, I, I like writing history, I guess, and researching, uh, researching some of the past in, uh, it's all popular culture, be it baseball or, or music.
1: Yes, and, and now that there's the return of, like, we, you can actually go and watch baseball, finally. Uh, I did. So, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, I'm a big Cubs fan, so. Well, the,
2: the Cubs, like the Red Sox, finally won the World Series again.
1: Oh, I know. Yeah, so usually my life starts out really exciting in, like, April, and then we get, yes, yeah, so in 2016, we got to October, and we're excited. and mm-hmm. I guess we'll wait 100 years again and see what Maybe. happens. Um, it'll be okay. Um, But Bill, it's been great talking to you again. This was Bill Nowlin, who is the author of Vinyl Ventures, My 50 Years at Rounder Records. Bill, thanks for talking with me.
2: Thank you, Rebecca. I enjoyed it very much.